we got the whole crew here for scripture reading. This is fun. So let me explain. I'm preaching on Amos today, but we're going to read from Deuteronomy because what happens in Amos is explained in Deuteronomy. So they got the right passage. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, 7 to 18, which is in page 153 of the Bible under your seat. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, following out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Good, good, good. Thank you. Good job, guys. Here we go. Boom. Nice job. Good job, Liz. Liz with two Zs, right? All right. Fancy. All right. So thank you for, for reading. That's great. So um, I had a prof in seminary that said, I fear prosperity more than liberal theology. And I remember when I heard that, I'm like, that's not right. But he went on and explained because prosperity does some things to our soul and our mind that also liberal the theology does. And so I, I, I've never forgotten that. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't on the test. I forgot other things on the test. But anyway, I fear prosperity more than liberal theology. I thought that is pretty profound. And so well, we're going to dive into that today. But if you're just joining us, this is Grace Life Bible Church. Thank you for tuning in online and for being here in person. Um, we are excited about experiencing God's grace and extending it. And if you asked me, how do you know that you are accomplishing your goals at Grace Life? It's really hard to measure that, right? Like if you work in a business, you have metrics and you have all these things you measure and you analyze, you survey. I would say... We are successful as a church to the degree that each one of us is extending grace more frequently in more difficult circumstances to more difficult people than we were in the recent past. We're growing in the ability to extend God's grace because of our walk with him. So that's just one way that I look at my life. I'm like, am I growing in Christ? How do I know? Maybe I'm just a nice, relaxed, optimistic guy. 
How do I know it's the Spirit's work, okay? There are moments when, when you know, they're so hard that it blows all the optimism and niceness out of the water, and you're left with just the power of the Spirit in the moment to respond with grace, and then we know. It's great. Anyway, so that's kind of what we're doing there, and um, I haven't shown you this for a while, but basically our values of knowing God, experiencing grace and forgiveness, growing in healthy relationships, impacting those far, near, and wide, anywhere, those are our values, and they form what we all should be developing, rhythms of grace, of reading and loving God and His Word, and extending grace and forgiveness, growing in healthy relationships and serving, and then all the, the, the main point is making disciples. I'm going to ask you in about 14 minutes what the main point is. The answer is making disciples, okay? Isn't that great? Test like that? Okay. So um, that's kind of what we're doing. That's how we roll here. Um, but as the, as the passage was read, I, I don't know if you caught it. When were they likely to forget God? It's when the text said, when you have eaten and are full, when you've built good houses and you live in them, when your herds and your flocks just think money, when your money is multiplying, when your silver and gold is multiplied, then you're in danger of forgetting God. And we know this. So, right after that passage in Deuteronomy 9, God says, Do not say in your heart that after the Lord has wiped out the Canaanites, it's because of my righteousness that he has brought us to possess this land. He's like, no, 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 it's because of their wickedness. And that's another temptation because I'm successful, so I'm good. And, and Scripture is pretty clear, not so fast. So, the big point here, Israel's future wealth was a gift from God, and Israel's future security was a gift from God that came from walking with him, um, obeying the covenant. So, but with wealth comes the danger of independence and also responsibility. So, first off, I, I need to inform you, it's really good news. I'm glad you're here today, because this is an important truth. You are wealthy. I'm not going to go like late night TV evangelism on you here and start doing weird stuff. I don't have a jet. I'm just, I'm just saying that I'll explain that in a bit, but we are wealthy. And what is our plan to not forget God and not forget the poor? Because we are faced with those issues. Very, do you live, do you give? Others, so many Americans are strapped by so much debt and in debt month to month to month. They literally can't give maybe as their heart would want to. So, so how we live is very important to what we can and can't do. So now let me just cut to brass tacks and prove that you are wealthy, okay? You are wealthy if you have 2,200 or more dollars in assets, you're in the top 50% economically of the world. 50%, that's not that impressive, okay. If you have $1,500 or more in annual income, you could, I was gonna say you could get a paper out and do that, but I don't think paper routes exist anymore. Anyway, I had a, okay. You're in the top 20% if you make at least $1,500 a year. If you have food, clothes, apartment, or some kind of house, and reliable transportation, you're in the top 15%. Looks like I need to buy an O there. Anyway. <laughs> Um, if you make $61,000 or more, 
Now, if you have 61,000 assets, you're in the top 10%. And if you make 25,000 or more annually, that's the top 10%. Now, top 10% is impressive of anything, okay? If you have hobbies, a closet full of clothes, two cars, and a house, you're in the top 5%. If you make $50,000 or more, you're in the top 1%. This is in the world. 50,000 or more, okay? If you have $500,000 or more in assets, you're in the top 1% of the wealth in the world. So you see kind of where I'm going? Um, so that's, I don't know where you are. We're all in there somewhere. We went to India on a prayer trek years ago with the kids and we were, you know, busted crazy roads. Everyone's honking and everything smells. The smells, the pictures don't capture the smells. I wish I had a scratch and sniff, right? But anyway, so we're driving to the mountain area in the northern Himalayas, a no-fly zone because it's close to China. And there's, there's these, a couple ladies in the river bed, dry, rocky riverbed, uh, squatting down on the ground. And they had a hammer and they're smashing rocks. I asked my friend who we went to visit there, he's a missionary, I go, what, what are they doing? And he said, oh, they're, they're making gravel by hand. One rock, they just smack. And he said that the, the way India works, that's the, the caste system, they're the lowest level and there's nothing they can do to get out of that lowest, that, that is their life. As long, there's no opportunity. They can't get a paper out. They can't sell something on eBay. They can't turn something and make something. It's just, they're stuck. And that, it's just profoundly sad. Anyway, that's not our story. The Lord has given us a different story that comes with dangers and responsibilities. And so we want to take a look at that today. Okay. So uh, just a, a zoom out, a quick overview of Amos and Hosea. I'm going to spend 80% of my time on Amos and just a little bit on Hosea. So um, know that ahead of time. But around 800 BC, if you remember, a lot of things were going on. And uh, during that time, the, the prophets emerged. And so there were some things going on within Israel and Judah that were very positive. They were prosperous, economic development. Their, their borders expanded. They had a couple good kings, which is sort of rare. And uh, things were rolling. And, and primarily because Assyria was, was distracted. So they, they kind of left the scene, which allowed Israel and Judah to, to flourish. But at the same time, they grew in prosperity. The, the corruption and the sin and the idolatry and the perversion also grew. And so right at 800 BC, we have a shift from the speaking prophets to the writing prophets. And it's pretty simple, okay, on the test. If, if there's a prophet in your Bible, he is a speaking or writing prophet. Writing, because he wrote, right? So everybody before they wrote is a speaking prophet because we don't have the writing. All right. Anyway, so that's kind of what's going on with that. Um, so the speaking or the writing prophets were, were basically, this is also a fun test question. I don't know why I'm on the test thing, but, but um, all, all prophets, 17 of them, they all said the same thing. Repent or perish. Just in different ways, different circumstances, all right? But the thing is they don't repent, and so Assyria comes and many of them do perish. And so by the end of the 800s there, um, by like 722, Israel in the north is annihilated. 701, Judah in the south is attacked. It's only because of Hezekiah's prayer and, and uh, compliance to God that, that they're saved. But later on in you know, 605, 100 years later, Babylon wipes them out and they go into exile. So um, prosperity caused them to forget. We want to look at this story, heed it, and apply it to our culture so that we don't make the same mistake. So where have we been? We've been going through the Old Testament books, Adam, Noah, Moses, 
Joshua, Judges, David, Saul, Solomon. Um, remember the books of poetry happen during the stories of Samuel and Kings, and the books of prophecy happen during the story of 1st, 2nd Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And remember, by the time you get to Esther in your Bible, chronologically, everything else in the Old Testament is over. Okay? That's just how that works. So, we're going to be looking at uh, Hosea and Amos today, two prophets right there. So, um, that's just another... Skip that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go academic on you here a little bit with, with a chart because it's, it's pretty cool. So just remember the story. You have a united kingdom, and then Solomon dies, and then it splits. You have Israel in the north. You have ten tribes in the north, and then you have two tribes down below, okay? Um, Judah, Benjamin, and so that's what that graph is. So just in your head, one line, united kingdom, it splits. You've got Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and... and um, the key word there is annihilation of Israel in the north, 722, and the big red thing. That's when Assyria came in and just nuked them, okay? Uh, pretty brutal. Down in the south, the word is exile. They go away for 70 years, then they come back. So, um, now that's, I'm going to zoom in on this chart just strictly with the prophets in mind. And so keep the, the single and the split so here's a little single line on the left, and it splits to Israel in the north, Judah in the south. So we're familiar with that. Now, what I want to show you is that in, in the north, Amos and Hosea write to Israel. Predominantly, to, they, they, all the prophets kind of address other folks, but primarily they're addressing Israel in the north, okay? Until Assyria wipes them out. Assyria in pink is, is the bad. Now, then there's another a couple prophets, Jonah and Nahum. They specifically address Assyria. Do you find that surprising? Because Assyria is not God's chosen nation, but, but Assyria has some issues. And God is like, hey, you can't be killing the innocent people. And so Jonah actually offers them redemption. They take it. But one generation later, Nahum, they're back to their, their atrocities of killing and doing all kinds of cruel, horrible things. Um, and then Nahum says, you guys are done. And then Babylon came and they're done. Then you have Edom. That's a, a little sister nation, you know, Jacob and Esau. But Obadiah writes to the Edomites because the Edomites were uh, aiding the Babylonians in the attack of Israel. Uh, as, as, as Jews would leave through the hole in the wall at night, the Edomites would capture, kill, or arrest them and turn them over to Babylon. And so God is telling Obadiah, hey, no, don't kill your brother people. And then here's, here's what I want to show you. I was teaching Old Testament survey, blah, 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 you know, year after year after year. I don't know who it was. I wish I had his or her name. But a, a kid in the back raises, I think it was the guy, raises his hand and says, hey, Dr. Holmes, did you notice that every non-Judean prophet spells Jonah? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He goes, well, well, look, I mean, you've got Jonah, J, he writes to Assyria, and you've got Obadiah writes to Edom, N, Assyria, A-H, Jonah. So he said every other prophet writes to Judah. Is that brilliant? So I'm like, A plus for you, whatever that means. But anyway, but seriously, so if you can remember J-O-N-A-H, Jonah, you just memorize those five, any other prophet you run into is down in Judah. So there you go. We should sell t-shirts. <laughs> Maybe not. And so here's all, all, all the guys down below are just, you know, Judah, a whole bunch of stuff going on. We'll, um, we'll 
pass on that and move on here to the prophets. So let's take a look here. We're going to be looking at Amos and Hosea, the minor prophets. Let's take a look at Amos. Um, his name means burden. He was burdened with social um, disparity, uh, a lack of care and love for the poor, lack of care and love for the Lord. And so um, fake worship, fake repentance, they were just going through the motions. And so um, here's a warning that he gives in uh, chapter 7. The Lord took me from following the flock. He... This guy was from Judah. He's from the south. He's a shepherd. He's just doing, he's a farmer. And the Lord says, hey, here's a message. Go and, and deliver this to the people in the north, which had to be at least a little bit of social political tension. You know, like, like wait, he's some farmer from the south. What are you doing telling us how to live? Well, the Lord told me how. That's what he does. Anyway, uh, the Lord says, and he, the Lord is upset saying, you, you people say, don't prophesy against Israel. Don't preach against the house of Israel. Therefore, the Lord says, the wife, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be dividing up and you will die in an unclean land. You will go away into exile. So there's, there's a stern warning. This is part of that repent or perish thing. Okay. And so... This is his, his message is to the north. And so basically, I got a little yellow line there on the bottom of my You'll see two squares. I know online you can't see my little pointer. That's fine. But basically, Israel is in the north. Judah is in the south. And my question is, if you know anything about the history of Israel, all, how many kings were good in Israel in the north? Zero. Not a single one. And there were some good kings in the south. And so the question is like, well, how come the north is just so bad? Like, what's going on with that? One aspect that we fail to frequently ask when we're studying the Bible is uh, like real life questions, like topography, road construction. I've told you this before. If you're ever in a Sunday school Bible study, you raise your hand. Hey, how does the topography affect the narrative? <laughs> Dead silence. Because we just don't think that way. But it does. And so here's, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a red line. Uh, the Via Maris, their main, it's like the Interstate 80 of their culture. It goes along the coast in Judah, but it goes through the heart of northern Israel. And so traffic, international traffic, constantly through the heart, the major cities of Israel in the north. But it was just on the coast where the major cities of Judah are not. So the best of the worst ideas were going through the heart of Israel, day after day, week after week, exposed to all the idolatry, all the good news, all the, 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 all the bad ideas, okay? Um, but in Judah, it's, it's just down on the coast and they're zipping through. It's like flyover country. We can relate to that, right? Anyway, so um, possibly that's one reason why the North adopted, embraced all these bad ideas of idolatry so quickly is because they just see them all the time. All right? The, the, the practical application to that is to live in Nebraska. <laughs> I'll just leave that alone. Anyway, so um, 800s, economic prosperity. Uh, Uzziah, the, the Judean king, comes on board, and um, he builds a powerful army, and he reclaims some land. And Jeroboam II in the north, he also, because Israel, um, sorry, because Assyria was preoccupied, he's allowed to, to thrive and look like a big deal, right? But then when Assyria pays attention, they come in and kill everybody. So um, just a little blip on the radar. 
So, um, in fact, by 722, they're just no more. So, but the point is, during this time, they had economic prosperity, they had wealth. In fact, in Samaria, uh, up in the north, um, archaeologists find boatloads of ivory, um, ivory dishes, ivory bedstands that you, you know, they would put their cell phones on at nighttime, right? That kind of thing. But, but seriously, they found lots of ivory all over the place. So, there's just wealth galore in Samaria in the north. And they were pursuing that, and um, they, they, they forgot. So here's, here's a key verse, Deuteronomy 8. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth. Isn't that great? The Lord is expecting us to get it, to go out and work. He doesn't just give us a truckload of money. He's given you not money, but the power to get money, that he may confirm his covenant. So that's what the money would mean to them. He's blessed us with the ability to get money because it's a bridge to remember him in gratitude and not a barrier to block the relationship with him because of idolatry. You see that? It's a bridge of thankfulness, gratitude, dependence, understanding. He, he, this is a gift he's given us. And, and all of you and us are wired in different ways. We can do a vast array of different things to make money. Some of you can sing songs and make money and draw pictures and make money or do architecture and make money or whatever it is. All right? Um, and that is great how we're all gifted differently. So um, they forgot. They forgot to remember where money came from and why God gave it to them. Those are two piercing questions that you need to, you need to grab. Where does money come from? And why has God given me the ability to gain wealth? All right? So, um, sadly, this, this little bubble of economic prosperity came crashing down. And um, God used Assyria, as he said, to come in and discipline Israel. So, one of the things Amos is concerned about is treating the poor, mistreatment of the poor, ignoring the poor. And our culture is really, really awkward. I mean, if I want to start talking about practical things, when you drive by a panhandler on the intersection, need money, what kind of emotions do you have? What do you do? I mean, it is a real thing. Well, oh, but it's illegal. You can take that route. Um, you can do a whole lot of different things. A buddy of mine runs um, missionary. It, it's a it's a mission. It's a mission that runs civil engineers all over the world to help build wells and things like this to to bless people in super remote, difficult places. So he's seen the worst of the worst. He was in Haiti, and he was digging, you know, a, a, a latrine or well or whatever it was. And a lot of Haitians were there, just standing around. And he's like, "Here, here's a shovel and, and help. Let, let's go. Let's get this project done." And they said, "No, no, no." The, the white men does our work. We don't, we don't do the work. And he started to understand when helping can hurt. There's a whole book, When Helping Hurts. And it's very, very complex. But he has a whole different view. His view is like, hey, it is not good for you, to, for me to give you money. You need to work for your money. That's his approach. He's just, he's just, and I'm, we all have to deal with that. But I, that was like, I haven't heard that before. That was very different. So... What I, I'm, sometimes I've given them money, sometimes food, sometimes I don't. We all have to figure that out. My, my point is, we do need to wrestle with in our culture, what does it look like for us to care for the poor? And, and that's not the same answer, all right? But that's the question, all right? So, um, all right, so... Here is a verse, James, New Testament stuff, super practical, a lot of words, I'll just kind of read through it. Come now, you rich, 
Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Remember the moth. Uh, your gold and silver have corroded. Uh, in the Deuteronomy, he said they would multiply, but here they've corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the, the kid who mowed your lawn, will, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the hosts. You have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So this... This is New Testament stuff, and we have to figure this out. So, is caring for the poor important? Certainly, we could argue it's, you, you got to pay your bills, right? So, when mows your lawn, pay them. Um, it's always distressing when you hear some ultra-billionaire person stiff people that work for them. It's like, what in the world, right? That happens. Anyway, how important is caring for the poor? Should caring for the poor be our main thing? Maybe the peak at the top, remember making disciples, should we replace that with caring for the poor? There was a time in history where the church did that, the social gospel. They replaced making disciples with caring for the poor, and that became their main thing, and they lost track of the real main thing. Now, it's inconceivable to think that as we grow in, in love for the Lord, and we mature and become like Christ, that we would be more calloused to the poor. That, that doesn't make any sense. So, so the transformation that we experience comes from the power of the gospel, and we cannot leave the gospel behind as we're thinking about the question, what do I have to do with the poor? That's part of the answer, okay? So, um, the love and care that we extend comes from the transformation of the gospel, and we are charged to care for one another. Here's a couple verses, Galatians. So, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are the household of faith. So we are called to care for one another. And little children, let us, the, the, the us is important, not love in word or just talk, but indeed in truth. And so we're called to care for one another and um, have a heart of gratitude as we do that. Okay. So, um, and that leads us to one of the, one of the burdens that, that he had was tithing and how in northern Israel, Amos was saying, you guys, you, you don't tithe, you, you rob God, you're robbing the poor. And so just a quick little thing on tithing, that it turns out, tithe means 10%, okay? And so sometimes if you hear language, do you tithe? And, and the person might mean, do you give anything? Or they might mean, do you give 10%? So just that's, that's how, that's what that word means. But there were a couple different tithes. If you read the Old Testament super carefully and you, you stack all these tithes on top of each other, you can get anywhere from 23% to 30% that you're supposed to give. Okay. The yearly tithe was in crops and livestock and was supposed to be celebrated as a communal meal. They would pull that, that wealth out, they would gather together, and they would eat from it in community. Now think about this. In an agrarian culture, everyone's farmers and crops are the main thing. And the local god, Baal, his claim is that all the crops come from him. And the Lord is saying, you need to take your crops and you need to celebrate with a feast that's pointed to me. I'm the one that gives you this stuff. Don't get confused about what the local people say about the fertility coming from Baal. Isn't that beautiful? But there was another uh, tithe that happened every three years that was given to 
the Levites, the poor, and running the tabernacle and everything else. So um, I'll, I'll come back to the tithe and what that means for us in a bit. But here's a verse for Amos 4. Um, come to Bethel and transgress. The Lord's a little sarcastic here, okay, just so you know. <laughs> uh, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. So he's like, it won't matter if you show up every day or every, instead of every three years, every three days. You're just pretending to be religious. You're still, your heart is still poisoned with sin and, and it's not going to help. They were worshiping regularly, but their heart was broken in God's eyes. So, do you see giving through the lens of a requirement? You gotta tithe, gotta tithe, because if you don't tithe, there's that verse in Malachi that the monster is gonna come eat your stuff. It, okay, if you know Malachi, there's this verse. Anyway. Or do you see tithing and giving in general not as a requirement, but as, as a response of joy and gratitude for what God has done and what he can do through you? And that all of a sudden gets our minds off of, check the box, I'm at the minimum, now I'm safe from the destroyer, to I'm thrilled about what you and you and you are doing and all this. It's just a whole different mindset, okay? So this is interesting. Nowhere in the New Testament have I found, maybe I missed it, you can look, read the New Testament, tell me next week. Nowhere in the New Testament does it recommend or even require the tithe, the 10%. And we all talk about that like that's a thing. It just, here, here's a verse. 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put something aside, each one of you put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting money to come. The idea is that Paul is saying, hey, as you, and we all prosper at different rates. So whatever God's blessing you, you figure it out. Set something aside. Isn't that great? It's harder though, because 10%, I know what that is, right? I don't have to think about it. I don't have to like really wrestle with the Lord or just 10%, here you go. Um, in 2 Corinthians 9, check this out. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that, that assumes that you're in touch with your heart. That assumes that you're in touch with your finances. That assumes that you know your, your obligations, your income, your debt, your liabilities, all this stuff, so that you can respond and the Lord can guide your heart with what to give. If you're clueless about finances, you, you're stuck. You, you're not in a place where you can maybe give. You certainly don't want to, heard one story once about someone who, who gave and gave lots, you know, big deal, a lot of big checks, but, but then it came out that this person was, was like moving money and sort of stealing from somewhere else to be a big deal in the church. That's not the plan, right? Let's, uh, let's just um, come to grips with our own heart, with the Lord and, and with our finances so we can be sensitive to what does he want me to do? All right, so... Um, and this is a great verse from Jeremiah 22. Listen to this. Um, he has defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Listen to this next phrase. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? He defended the cause of the poor. Isn't that what it means to know me? That's God speaking. Isn't that great? So, so at some point, our question is, what does it look like for us to care for the poor? And, and our world is very complex, 
but we can find an answer for that, all right? Um, so Amos rolls through his book, and if, if you're a Jew in this culture, the covenant is guiding everything. Your, your adherence to the covenant or your violation of the covenant guides everything. And so remember, Deuteronomy 28 is sort of like the anchor of the covenant. And so I'm going to roll through a couple, um, a couple things here. Amos is concerned about indulgent living at the expense of the poor, dishonesty, um, cheating the tithe, hating the prophets, ingratitude toward the Lord, pride and arrogance, righteous hypocrisy, syncretism, all this stuff. And that was a big problem. So here he, he goes to, to the mindset of Deuteronomy, and um, I'll read the Deuteronomy verse, and then I'll read together the Amos. But, but, but it says this, Deuteronomy 28, if you sin and continue to disobey me, cursed will be your basket, your kneading bowl, the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, your herds and your flocks. And, and Amos is saying, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread, and yet you did not return to me. Okay, cleanness of teeth. If you don't have any food, your teeth are clean. That's what it means. It's not like, oh, that's nice, clean teeth, dental. No, no, it means you got nothing to eat. You got nothing, you have no reason to floss if you have nothing to eat, okay? Uh, the next one. Uh, it says, the Lord will strike you with boils of Egypt, tumors, scabs, and itch. <laughs> Of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. And Amos is saying, I sent pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Direct what he said in Deuteronomy. And yet you did not return to me. Uh, the third one. Drought. The Lord said, I will make the rain of your land powder. Which means there is no rain, but there's just dust because it's so dry. Uh, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. And then Amos says, I withheld the rain, yet you did not return to me. Okay. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, fever, inflammation, fiery heat, drought, blight, and mildew. And then he says, I struck you with blight and mildew, yet you did not. So they are tracking. They're like, oh, everything that was warned in Deuteronomy is happening to us in real time. All right. Um, I killed your young man, the sword carried away your horses, and so it just, I overthrew some of you in warfare, and, and so it goes on and on and on, um, yet you did not return to me. So that is what he's doing. And when he writes his message to Israel, he has this common language that prophets sometimes used, and um, it looks like this. For three transgressions of Israel or Egypt or whatever, uh, yet for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Does it surprise you that Amos is addressing all these nations? Because maybe you're thinking that the prophets, they only talk to Israel, they only talk to Judah, and they primarily talk to Israel and Judah, except for those that address like Jonah. Specifically, he's in Assyria and he talks to Assyria. But Amos did address all these other nations for reasons of violence, uh, greed, harming the innocent and harming Israel. And so um, until he gets to Israel, none of these other nations have four specific things. They have one or two. But he gets to Israel and he just dumps the truck. You sold the poor into slavery. You, you, you oppress the poor legally. You're sexual perversion all over the place. And you exploit the pledge of the poor. So look at this. The poor, the poor, sexual immorality in the poor. Really, that is a concern for Amos and for the Lord, all right? So, my question is, um, they wanted more. They wanted more for themselves. Well, I, I can't give anything to the poor because I want another ivory 
nightstand thing. They were just driving, right? That's how they thought. And we can think the same way. I want this thing. So I'm not going to, whatever it is. So why does more not always make us happy? So I found this study. It's interesting. It said more doesn't always make us happy because there's a number of reasons. One, we overestimate what additional money will mean to us. And it usually falls flat. More money comes with more stress. You're scared of losing it. Your investments and this and the hail and the rain and the people robbing. And it just, it just escalates into this big stressful thing. But this is interesting. Third, if you compare yourself with a person next door, you're going to be discontent. In fact, there is, there is, if you compare two people with the same income, one living in a really nice neighborhood, the other living in whatever average neighborhood, guess who's more unhappy? The person in the really nice neighborhood because they're comparing and always looking and I don't have enough, I don't have the boat and all this other stuff. All right? So if money doesn't make us, what does? And they had a bunch of things from a study, research. One secret of happiness, friends, family, and people. You're focused on people over the things. These people are happier, okay? Happy people focus on people, not things. Um, people in stable, committed relationships are happier than people not in relationships that are stable. Doing things. People, happy people do things, don't buy things. So, so we all like to be challenged with, with events. And I really see this in the younger generation. Many of them are like, I, like for Christmas, don't give me a candle or what. I, I, want, I want to go to a concert. They want experiences, which is great because those things actually, studies say you're happier with, with going to a thing than getting a t-shirt. All right. Happy people don't waste time on unpleasant things. They're not bothered by the success of other people. And this, this last one is really, this is a take-home thing. Happy people have intentional exercises that makes them grateful. They journal about what they're grateful for. They're, they're grateful on purpose. I mean, imagine if somebody said, oh, you're so lucky. You're, you're so grateful. I wish I could be grateful. You can. You just have to pursue it and work at it, right? What are you grateful for today? Write it down, okay? So um, those are some things about um, Amos and money. Let's zip through Hosea. Hosea is, is a book of idolatry, spiritual adultery, if you will. Now, Hosea, the, the book, let me just read a couple verses here, and, and it'll, it'll come into focus. Israel said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her way with thorns. I'll build a wall so she can't find her path. She'll pursue these things, but she will not overtake them. She did not know it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, but they used for Baal, the false god, the fertility god. They had bought into that lie of all the good stuff comes from Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest and my wine in its season. No crops, dust, rain, no Okay, so, uh, and this is weird because, because they pursued Baal as the giver of life and fertility, God is like, I'm just going to shut that spigot off or there's no more rain. 
Can you figure that out? Another thing God did, remember the crazy prophets? Like, you know, all the different things they did last week? This one's a little wow. He told Hosea, I want the people to have a visual aid of their spiritual infidelity. So you marry a prostitute who will be unfaithful to you so they can see practically this is what you've done to me. You're, you're, you're unfaithful to me. Yikes. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I'd rather be Joshua than Hosea, right? Anyway. So he writes to them. He's got a whole bunch of cool metaphors and pictures. He said, uh, God said, I will be like a moth to Ephraim. Now, now you may be like, ooh, is it a killer moth? You know, big fangs. <laughs> anyway, um, so no, but moths eat your clothes. If you're spending all your money on clothes, it's a big deal. He says, I will be bone disease. So you're, you're going to be physically sick. Uh, I will be to them like a, a fowler, one who traps birds. You're going you're to be trapped like a bird in a net be like a lion. Now, lions kill things. Israel, you're the zebra. Yeah, I'm going to be a lion. I'm going to tear into you. And then just imagine a bear robbed of her cubs, like a super angry bear, like oh, that. That's not really a good picture. All right, there we go. <laughs> um, a bear robbed of her cubs, tearing after them. And so the Lord said, I am going to be tearing after you for all these reasons. And, um, and that's that's Hosea's message. But, but wow, to, to, be, to be marry a woman who's promised to be unfaithful so that everyone else can see this is what you've done to me. Uh, I kind of wonder if, what, what if Hosea doesn't write this book that explains why he married the girl? <laughs> it's like, I, dude, what are you doing? Uh, here's a book. God told me to. Anyway, just I wonder about that. Anyway, closing up here. We are wealthy. We live in a wealthy society. We have opportunity, but the Lord is giving us the opportunity to get wealth. What does that mean to your heart? What does that mean to your soul? Where do you go with that? A couple things. Why has God given us wealth? I got four things here. To cultivate gratitude for him. To care for each other. Three, to do his kingdom work, which lasts for eternity. And four, as a joyful response so that we can share with joy to those around us. Cultivate, gra cultivate gratitude, care for each other, do eternal kingdom work, and respond with joy to the needs among us. Kind of like number two. Anyway, so wrapping up with closing questions here. We always like to take a couple seconds and think. Are you living like giving is a requirement or a response? Are you locked into the tithe 10% or are you willing to just ask, Lord, what would you impress on my heart? What's your plan to not forget God and the poor? And Hosea, where do you think the good stuff comes from? They thought it came from the local God, Baal, and, and we know better, but, but um, we have our own, our own lies that we have to decipher, right? So um, let me pray. Lord, thank you for Amos. What a, what a tough deal. He's just probably enjoying nice, nice weather with his flocks in the south, and then you show up and say, I have a difficult message for you to deliver to the north, and he was faithful. He, he followed you. He gave his message. It, it was not a popular message, and uh, may we be faithful as, as we navigate our culture, especially with finances, Lord. You've given us opportunity, and, and many you've given great wealth. What does that mean? I pray that you would help us understand um, 
how to legitimately enjoy that. There's nothing wrong with that, but also to keep money as a servant and not for it to become a master. We want money and wealth to be a bridge towards you in gratitude and, and love and joy and, and not a, a barrier that causes us to turn from you and um, pursue it in and of itself. So thank you for your goodness. Thank you for what you're doing. And, and thank you for the opportunities we have to follow you in our culture. Amen.